Welcome to the Potter's House Salmon Arm Podcast. We are a Bible-believing church located in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. We are proudly part of the Christian Fellowship Ministries with 3,000 churches around the world. We are a church focused on world evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Here we will share recent sermons from PHSA Church and other sermons from throughout our fellowship. I am Pastor David Bickford, and I will be your host for this podcast. I thank you for listening today, and we hope these messages are a blessing to you and bring you closer to God. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, My name is David Bickford, and this is the Potter's House uh, Church podcast in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. So today, the, the message that I have is called Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. But is it? So the text that we'll be, you know, working from this morning or from today is going to be First uh, Samuel 8, 1 through 9. And it's basically we'll look at, you know, this period of time in Israel's history when they were demanding a king. So as we kind of jump into this, I, I saw an, an article that, that kind of you know made me start thinking in this way. And this was this article's from a while back, but anyway, the article was Elon Musk reinstates his Trump Twitter account, ending the lifetime ban. So Twitter CEO Elon Musk formally reinstated Trump this weekend after conducting a poll on the platform that received more than 15 million votes. Reinstate former President Trump, yes or no? The poll simply asked, 52% of users agreed he should be allowed to be back on the platform, which has already restored others subject to bans, including the satirical account Babylon B or Kathy Griffin and Jordan Peterson. The people have spoken. Trump will be reinstated, Musk wrote. And then he, he ended with saying, Vox Populi, Vox D. And immediately, as you can imagine, you know, certain groups, liberals on Twitter fumed after Musk reinstated Trump to the platform saying, God help us, which I find particularly ironic. That being said, though, what I want to look at in that article isn't isn't any of the context behind the reasons why someone was banned or anything like that. No, what I want to hone in on is the term that he uses, Vox Populi. It sounds like some sort of thing it would would have been commonly invoked in the Roman Empire, but actually, the earliest known reference uh, to equating it with the voice of God or Vox Populi Vox D is in a disapproving way. It's attributed to a Saxon scholar and teacher, Alcuin of York, for in seven, who lived between 735 and 804 AD. The then master of the palace school of Aachen uh, uh, used this in a letter to the emperor Charlemagne in 800, and he wrote, And those people should not be listened to who keep saying the voice of the people is the voice of God, since the riotousness of the crowd is always close to insanity. So this kind of brings the the context of the the saying or the phrase into a different kind of light. Now we're starting to see that this wasn't meant as an evocation of God's working through man. Rather, it was a an evocation of the madness of man working through the mob. So let's look at our text in 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 9. This is when Israel demanded a king. And so it starts, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judge over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. 
Yet his sons did not walk in the ways or in his ways, but turned aside for gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramoth and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge over us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So this brings me to my first point. My first point is peer pressure. And then we're going to look at uh, the second point being mob rule. And then finally, we'll look at our third point, which would be Christ as our Redeemer. So let's look at peer pressure then. And you know, give us a king like all other nations. The situation here is that the Israelites desired to have a king uh, that was both from a place of unbelief and envy. They routinely fought God's plan for their lives, and that opened them up to being filled with envy for what they believed other nations had. At this time of Israel's history, they had yet to have a king outside of God himself. There were judges who God rose up to help the Israelites in times of need, and there were priests that were meant to point Israel to the law of Moses and the covenant that they had with God. If you consider the rights and privileges that were laid out in Levitical law, you could argue that they were a constitutional form of government at this time. Each tribe fundamentally governed themselves, but was required to rule according to the tenets of the law or the constitution given by God himself, the covenant. And then we look at their desire. The desire to be like other nations springs up out of their lost faith in God. This happened when Moses was too slow coming down from Mount Sinai. So they have a history of this happening. But if we look at Exodus 32, we we see the story of the golden calf. In verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountains, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. So then we also see today in Christian culture that constantly strives to bend the word of God to fit the secular world around us, we are called to accept ungodliness in our society as something to be revered. We are persecuted and judged for holding godly standards. We are told that times have changed and we need to reinterpret what the scripture and God's word really means. Our desire to fit in is moving against our conscience and pressuring us to give up our belief in God's word in order to belong and find friends in this world. So then we come to the warning. This is what happened to the Israelites, and it became their downfall. God's plan to govern his people through his prophets, judges, and priests, a theocracy based on the benevolence of the covenant, on God's benevolence and the covenant. His plan did not include an earthly king. Despite God's warnings, though, the people of Israel would not relent. So God allowed them to fit in and suffer their choice to reject God. So let's pick up again in 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 12. 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 12, when Samuel's warning against the kings. So in verse 10, it says, 
So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for him to uh, asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your field and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So Israel continues on here. And he, their, their request is granted. But the people refuse to obey. So we pick up in verse 19. They refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And they say, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to a city. Oftentimes we can encounter peer pressure. We can seek out advice. Sometimes that advice is from a godly resource, and sometimes it's from the voice of our friends. This, this entire episode reminds me of, of a later incident in Israel when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, grandson of King David, had a choice to make. In 1 Kings 12, 3-5, it says, And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went. Now the rest of this story is the advisors of King Solomon, his you know, Rehoboam's father, recommended lightening their load and dealing with them in humility, stating that it would endear them back to the house of Judah. Rehoboam's friends, on the other hand, had provided very harsh advice on how to deal with the situation. They recommended to, thre or to threaten a heavier burden and harsher conditions and even punishment. This scenario did play out. He chose the, the advice of his friends. And it had played out the way God had intended because in order to illustrate what had happened within the heart of the people of Israel. Oftentimes, even a king can be led astray because the desire to follow his friends. So rather than heed the, the advice of, of Solomon's advisors, he wanted to be buddies. He wanted his buddies to see him as being the big man and making the hard choices and being a leader. This choice immediately led to the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. All but one tribe of Israel defected from Judah because of Rehoboam's decision. So this was a, an example of not seeking godly advice again, but seeking the advice of, of, his, of the crowd, of his friends. Which brings me to my second point, which is mob rule. Whether it's Exodus 32 and the golden calf, 1 Samuel 8 and the demand for a king, or in our own life, it is dangerous to follow the mob. 
especially when it is in the opposite direction of God. So let's look at man's wisdom. Socialism can provide us with good examples of the dangers of the mob. Philosophy is always able to sway people's desires for equality and equity. The reality is, is that it always leads to the same disparities that it contends to fight against, but in the end, everyone has less than when we started. Michael Frank, who has held a number of positions on Capitol Hill, is the vice president of government relations at the Heritage Foundation, and he wrote, writing in his diary that dire economic straits and self-destructive behaviors that consumed his fellow Puritans, shortly after the arrival, Governor William Bradford painted a picture of destitute settlers selling their clothes and bed coverings for food while others became servants to the Indians. Cutting wood and fetching water in exchange for a capful of corn, the most desperate among them starved. With Bradford recounting how one settler in gathering shellfish along the shore was so weak, he stuck fast in the mud and was found dead in, it, in the place. The colony's leaders identified the source of their problem as a particularly vile form of what Bradford called communism, Prosperity in Plymouth Colony observed was communally owned and cultivated. This system, taking away of property and bringing it into a commonwealth, bred confusion and discontent, and retarded much employment that would have been to the settlers' benefit and comfort. This brought them to the brink of an extermination. The most able and fit young man of Plymouth thought it an injustice that they were paid the same as those not able to do a quarter the others could. Women, meanwhile, viewed the communal chores they were required to perform for others as a form of slavery. On the brink of extermination, the colony leaders changed course and allotted a parcel of land to each settler, hoping, to, hoping the private ownership of the farmland would encourage self-sufficiency and lead to cultivation of more corn and other foodstuffs. As Adam Smith would have predicated, this new system worked famously. This had very good success, Bradford reported, for it made all hands very industrious. In fact, much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been and productivity increased. Women, for example, went willingly into the field and took their little ones with them to set corn. The famine that nearly wiped out the pilgrims in 1623 gave way to a period of agricultural abundance and enabled Massachusetts settlers to set down permanent roots in the new world, prosper, and play an indispensable role in the ultimate success of the American experiment. A profoundly religious man, Bradford saw the hand of God in Pilgrim's economic recovery. Their success, he observed, may well evince the vanity of that conceit that the taking away of property would make men happy and flourishing as if they were wiser than God. Bradford surmised God in his wisdom saw another course fitter for them. Amen to that. The reason why he could say this, the reason why he could say God and his wisdom saw another course fitter than them is when you look through the, the Bible, when you look at God's wisdom, Levitical law provides us guidance on property rights, a preferred judicial system, and even a sort of welfare rights. In Leviticus 9.9 or 19.9, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of the harvest. When you reap the harvest of your land, it so it repeats this again in verse 22, saying the same thing. It, it, but it goes on and it says, leave, leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. So what you can see, though, with the Old Testament is that there were parcels of land. There was private land divided up amongst the tribes with the expectation that they would flourish on their land, on their family land. 
Ultimately, though, we are called to put nothing before God. He is to be the center, and he is meant to be the head of Israel's government. Humanity constantly strives to put celebrities, and these days to politicians, scientists, and doctors above God. There's a constant drive to supersede God in our society. We are called by the mob to deny God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, to please the mob. In Psalm 1, 1 through 6, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the steps, or walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They are all like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment or stand in the judgment, nor the sinner in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This brings me to my final point, which is Christ is our Redeemer. Despite the sins of Israel, God provided deliverance to the nations through their kingly line. Saul was chosen to be the first king, and he was initially a good king. He entered into his kingship with humility. In 1 Samuel, he was plucked out of obscurity. And in 1 Samuel 9, that's when that happened. In 1 Samuel 10, we see him being anointed to be king. But unfortunately, even though he was a good king in the beginning, he quickly fell to the pride of man. So pride defeated Saul. Saul defeats the Ammonites, the Philistines, but he makes an unlawful sacrifice, supplanting his position of kingship, but supplanting the rightful position that Samuel had as the priest. So he did priestly duties, thinking that he was above God's law. This this led for to him to being you know removed from having the anointing of God. God removed his hand from Saul's life because the consistent choices that Saul made to you know feel that he was above the, the law of God. This led him to insanity. And in 1 Samuel 15, we see the Lord rejecting Saul at the at the where there's a scene where Samuel judges the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And then in 1 Samuel 28, we see how far he's gone, you know, from being a godly king, anointed, found in obscurity. We see Saul now going to the witch of Endor to seek out mystical advice because he can no longer tap in to the advice or to the to the anointing of, of God. Well, then what happens then is that we see that God has chosen a different man, a better king. And, and David becomes the anointed of God. And again, he is plucked out of obscurity and he is, you know, anointed as, as king over it, over Israel in humility. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king by Saul, as by Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 17, we see the battles, the battle of Goliath, where David is anointed by God, is able to defeat the giant Goliath. And, and spare, and then later on we see him go out of his way, that even though he's being hunted by a very jealous King Saul, we see David having every opportunity to, to kill his enemy, which is Saul. But David did not see him as an enemy. 
And so he spares Saul's life in 1 Samuel 24 and 26. This really shows the, the difference of King David, you know, versus King Saul. But but he is still just a man and he does fall to his own pride. So at the time of the nations, when they're when kings are out to war, 2 Samuel 11, we see David commit adultery with Bathsheba. But here's the difference with King David is that he, at when when shown his failing, when shown his sinful nature, he he decides on a different route than what King Saul decides. King Saul lifts himself up in pride even more, whereas King David humbled himself and he cried out for redemption. And we see that in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan rebukes, Nathan, the prophet of the kingdom, rebukes King David and David stops in his tracks and he repents. And it's because of that repentance is because that King David had a heart that was after the Lord that we see something very different happen in this, this man's life. He, he is, he, there's a covenant made with K King David that it is his line that will be the messianic line. And it brings us to the best of kings, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, our, G our, our savior, Jesus Christ. He is perfect. He is sinless. And he is willing to sacrifice. He sacrificed his life. He came to earth, lived as a human, but he sacrificed his life so that we could enter back into direct relationship with our God. All during the time of the Levitical line, of all of the Levitical law, there was always priests that had to meet, uh, that had to go before us to have relationship with God, but not anymore. Now, we are able to have that direct relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that salvation that we can receive through the repentance of our sins and acceptance of Jesus as our Lord that makes him the king for all time. It is through Christ that our relationship with God is set right again. The sin of the mob is to turn away from God's teaching and to look only at man's limited understanding. We constantly need to turn our eyes back to the cross and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though all of Israel's rebellions, all throughout the, Israel's history, their constant rebellion, God had a plan to save the nations through the Messiah and bring us back to right relationship with God the Father the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and King of kings and Lord of lords. He set us back into that, that righteous path of our lordship being God, not a king, but being God. And we get that through the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost today. So with that, as long as you're not driving, right? You know, I'd like to every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're driving, I'd just like you to listen to this because this is Every single time I I preach a message, wherever I'm at, there has to be an opportunity. There has to be an opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. Be like King David. Don't be like King Saul. When, when you're shown the fact that we all are fallen, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all need salvation in Jesus Christ because we have sinned and fallen short. But in that's we have all, all need to do that, and it is just at this moment, if this message is spoken to you at all, 
Turn your heart to God. Let the, don't let the conviction of the Lord pass, but rather turn your heart to God and accept him as your Lord and Savior. It's a very easy thing to do. It doesn't take any time, really. But all you have to do is recognize that, yes, Lord, I am a sinner. I know that I've fallen short of the glory of God. I know that I've lied, I've cheated, I've stolen, I've done all sorts of, of wicked things. But I repent, which just means turn. I turn from my sin. And I accept you to be my Lord, my Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank you for the salvation that comes from that knowledge. And that's just a simple prayer that you can say. So it, it just it, real quick, it'd be like, Dear Lord God, I know that I'm a sinner, but I know that you died for my sins. I accept you as my Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. I repent of my sins. I turn away from them. And I thank you for salvation through grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Simple prayer. If you prayed that prayer, send me a message. Let me know. Let me know if these messages are getting out there, if they're if they're you know impacting you in any way. Because that's the whole goal of this, is to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out as far as we can. And with, with our Potter's House churches and Christian Fellowship Ministries, we do that. We have 3,000 churches globally, roughly. And we are trying to push forward the gospel of Jesus Christ, the undiluted gospel that you can get from reading the Bible. So I thank you for taking the time to listen to, to me today, tonight, whenever you're listening. And I just pray that these messages are impacting you. And I can't wait for you to come back next time. Thank you. God bless. Thank you for listening to the PHSA Potter's House Salmon Arm Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Potter's House underscore Salmon Arm to keep up to date on what we are doing. Join the conversation and discover how Jesus Christ can revolutionize your life.